O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Those are verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 98, which is the psalm appointed for today, May the 15th, 2021. Thank you for being along. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. So I appreciate you being with us today. I'm looking forward to a wonderful Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all those uh, women who are out there who who have children, or at least whose people love them like they belong to them, because I know plenty of those as well. Um, we've had a busy week this week. We've gone from Chattanooga, we've been in Chattanooga for about I don't know what, ten days or something like that, and then we went to back to no- uh, Asheville for a couple of days. We had some things we needed to get done in order to prepare the house for Will when he returns. Our bedrooms are all upstairs, and so we had to set up a place where he could be down on the main floor of the house, and uh, we got that done and a whole bunch of other stuff while we were there, and so it was a quick turnaround, but we had a good time, and it's been a good week. We spent a lot of time with him, a lot of time with um, my mom and my brother and uh, sister-in-law, as well as a lot of good friends in Chattanooga while I've been here, and so it's been a really blessed time. We've we've enjoyed being here, and we're going to be here at least another couple of weeks, it looks like. Um, but we're going out of town next weekend, too, for my nephew Sam's wedding. He's marrying uh, a wonderful girl from Alabama, and so we're headed down to Alabama next weekend for that. So we're looking forward to all of these things. It's going to be a busy week, but going to see more friends and do more things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about what God's doing and, and the opportunities he's given me to reconnect with people because, you know, if you know me very well, then you know that's my thing is people. And so... Um, so it's been great to reconnect with some folks and, and uh, enjoy spending time together. And so looking forward to a good week. We've got um, a lot to deal with today in some ways, but you could break it down and make it incredibly simple. I could turn this sermon around in about five minutes probably, but if you know me, you know I'm not likely to do that. Um, <laughs> there's there's a very simple theme that runs through the uh, all the lessons today, and that, and that is that Jesus is being made known, and much is made of him, and that that's basically the theme, and, the, and then the rest of it comes down to what is our responsibility, and what does it mean once we've been saved, what does it mean, and what do we do with that? Um, it, it's not complicated. It, it, we can make it complicated, but, but it's not actually complicated at all. It has a lot to do, so much to do, with uh, just being obedient. What does it mean to follow him? And it means to keep his commandments. And that's kind of over and over through these lessons, that's exactly what's, what's being stated. And so remember that when we're in uh, the season of Easter, which is Easter Sunday, all the way up through Pentecost, Remember that we uh, don't really have an Old Testament reading on Sunday mornings. We only have a lesson from the book of Acts and then an epistle and a gospel. So it's, um, I guess we can go ahead and jump in and get started. And, and we're going to start today with the, with the, the lesson from Acts. Um, and so the, the lesson is from Acts 10 um, verses 
44 to 48, and it's while Peter was still saying these things, and what were these things? Well, those things were his proclamation of the gospel to the uh, Gentiles who were at the home of Cornelius, who was a centurion in the Roman army. And these are, so these are Gentiles that he is among. And it's because, if you remember the story, Peter had a dream. And in that dream, there were, uh, it happened multiple times. And, and the dream was this, this sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of animals, including clean and unclean animals. And unclean are those things that God determined to be unclean in the, in the book of Leviticus, in the law giving. Part of the law giving was the, what you could eat, what was okay for you to eat, and what was not okay for you to eat. And so Peter sees this sheet coming down out of heaven with all these animals in it and, and is told, go and kill and eat. And he protests against that. And then uh, he, he is told a second time, I've commanded you to go and kill and eat. So, so everything is now open. Uh, the dietary laws have, have been uh, put away at this point. And so, so Peter, I'm sure, is, is incredibly confused about what that might mean. Um, can, can he go out and do this? And then he gets a word that, that there are a couple of men coming to get him, and he's supposed to go with them when they show up. And so they show up and they get him. This other man, Cornelius the centurion, has also been told something, what to do, given a word from the Lord, and he's supposed to send these men. And so Peter goes with them. And, and, and Peter, when he gets to the home of Cornelius, is, is a little bit prideful in my mind because he says, look, I'm, I'm not even supposed to uh, enter the home of a Gentile, but yet here I am, you know. And so he begins to preach the message, which is Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised from the dead. And suddenly, that's when this comes up. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so at this point, the church is new and the church is Jewish. So it's basically Jews who have accepted Jesus as Messiah who, who make up the entirety of the church. There may have been some proselytes among them, but there's not many. I mean, if you look at the, the book of Acts, when they name the deacons... In Acts 6, there are, the, the reason is because some of the Hellenized folks there are saying that, hey, our, our people are getting short shrift in the distribution of the food. Our widows and orphans are not getting as much as the Jews. There's a distinction being made. And we don't know who's making that distinction, but that's when the disciples say, hey, we ain't got time for this. We need to deputize some other people. We'll call them deacons. And those deacons will be in charge of the distribution of food and stuff like that. We're going to handle the preaching of the gospel and dealing with the Word of God. And there would have been a lot to do in those days, right? I mean, they're trying to assimilate all the knowledge they have about the Old Testament into Jesus and trying to figure out sort of how do all these things fit together. We know that he's Messiah, and that therefore everything in the Old Testament needs to point to him, and so we're going to have to go back and rethink the way we interpret a whole lot of the Old Testament, and so they're doing that on the fly, and they're doing it only through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're not having to cook this stuff up, and so they're, they're coming to a realization about the Old Testament that is, um, that is different from what they had thought in the past because they were looking for this messianic king figure, and now they're trying to 
have to have to sort of go back and, and say, okay, so we've misunderstood, at least in the shorter term, we've misunderstood those passages about Messiah and what God's promise actually was. And now we're having to go rethink these things in light of the resurrection. And we're having to go back and, and see, a, look at these scriptures in a different way with new eyes, with the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us into that interpretation. So there was a lot to do. And so that they... They were not really, I think, at this point, even thinking about how to assimilate Gentiles and, and how to go out and spread the word of the Gentiles. They were told to go to the ends of the earth, but, it, but at some level they were probably thinking, okay, we're going to go to the Jewish diaspora to the ends of the earth, and we'll look there. And here God sends him specifically to this Gentile house. And so he preaches the word, and the people that came with him, so Peter didn't come by himself with these uh with the people who had come to get him, he's taken others with him, and they were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out even on these Gentiles. And, and it's certainly an, an odd thing for them to see that God's doing a new thing. And therefore, that's the reason I started with this, uh, that part of the psalm that I did, sing to the Lord a new song, because he has done marvelous things. And those marvelous things mean you need a new psalm, because he's doing something different, something that's going to spur us to a different kind of worship. And so, so Peter is just simply obedient to the commandment of God here, and goes to this Gentile household, proclaims the gospel, and sees that even among them, God's doing a work. You know, before this, it was first among the Jews who were there at Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. And then you see it again in Acts 4 when, when Peter and John are at the beautiful gate and they heal the man who's been there and he has been crippled all those years. And, and then what happens is after that, they've got to explain what happens. And so they have to declare to those Jews who were gathered there in the temple what's happened and that it was in the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth, that this man has been healed. And so they're proclaiming again there to Jews. And so then after that, what do we get? Well, we get Stephen proclaiming the gospel, and he's proclaiming the truth to the Jews who oppose him, and then he's stoned to death. And then after that, the prosecu persecution sorry, breaks out in Jerusalem. And what, what we're told by Luke is, is that everybody except the apostles got out of Dodge, right? I mean, they went on out of Jerusalem because of this persecution, but the apostles stayed there. And it always tickles me because they're the ones who were actually commanded to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the, the word has surely gone out from Jerusalem because Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. And so that's another harvest festival. And, and so the people have gathered in Jerusalem again 50 days after the Passover when the crucifixion occurred. And so now they've gathered again, maybe not in the same numbers, but with a joyous spirit and a joyous celebration of the harvest. And so they've come for the Feast of Weeks, and, and the word, the buzz, surely was all over Jerusalem that, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So... <clears throat> The word then would have gone forth from Jerusalem to the places where all these who had gathered for Pentecost would have gone back home. They would have heard, you know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story concerning this Jesus who had been crucified the last time they were in Jerusalem. And now they're finding out something different. And then the Holy Spirit falls and the, the, the buzz really becomes something because all these people come rushing to where the disciples are on the day of Pentecost. So then, 
after that persecution, Stephen does what we saw Stephen doing last week, and Stephen is, he goes to the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are, they think themselves to be the real Israel, and that's the argument, uh, or discussion maybe, that Jesus has with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, and that is to say that you worship, you know not what, but salvation comes from the Jews. And so what he's doing is gathering back in those lost sheep of Israel, by going to them and proclaiming the gospel through this woman to that entire village where she lived. And so what Stephen does after this persecution breaks out is he goes to Samaria and he proclaims the gospel there, and they believe, and then he calls for the apostles. They come lay hands on these people, these these sort of brother Jews. Um, Even though they're called Samaritans, they consider themselves to be those who persevered longest, and the others had left and followed all this other stuff. So he goes to them, they believe, he calls for the apostles, they come out, they lay hands on these people, and what happens, they begin to speak in tongues, just like what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so there's multiple Pentecosts that happen as the word goes out to fresh groups. And then we see um, Philip again. With in the lessons we had last week with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and he is just sent to this one guy and then sends him out, and we know that, that the church then exploded and persevered in Ethiopia through all these millennia. So that there has been this, this sort of moving outward kind of emotion, but this is the first time anybody's gone to just like straight-up Gentiles. They obviously knew something before they got there. And when I say they, I mean these Gentiles at Cornelius' house. But then, so now, suddenly, God's jumped out of the box that they had created for him, which is we'll just keep going to, to Jews and, and Jews for the diaspora. And, and now, suddenly, they're sent specifically to this Gentile home. And, and the effect of preaching the gospel to these Gentiles is the same as it was with the Samaritans, same as it was with the Jews who had come at the day of Pentecost, the same as what happened at, at um, the Beautiful Gate. And that is people believed. But here, they just explode. <laughs> it's hilarious to even think about this because suddenly they see these people, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And so the Spirit has come and borne witness to the truth of the message proclaimed by Peter and, and proclaimed it in such a way there's an ecstatic response from those who heard that gospel preached. And even though these are not even Jews, God has blessed them with the same Holy Spirit. And the proof is that that the manifestation of the infilling of the Holy Spirit is the same as it was among them on the day of Pentecost, the same as it was with the Samaritans when, when they laid hands on those people. And now, without them laying hands on them, with only hearing the proclamation of the gospel, what you see is this this manifestation of the Holy Spirit with these people speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declares, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now we tend to think these things follow in the opposite order, that you can be uh, baptized and then filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Anglican world, when we baptize, we baptize for salvation. So we're saying that we want salvation to come to this child, or we're acknowledging salvation has come in the case of the baptism of an an adult. And so we're recognizing something, and and we're sealing that person in baptism by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and the, the 
the hope, the goal, the belief is um, that like children who are entered into the covenant through circumcision in the Old Testament, we are now baptizing you with water in the name of Jesus into the new covenant. Just as Jesus himself was baptized, and at the baptism, the Father proclaimed that he was well pleased in his beloved Son. So we, we baptize in that same way. You're now a member of the New Covenant community. And then the community is enjoined to make sure that this one is raised up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The entire congregation takes a vow that we'll make sure that this person is raised to know Jesus. And that's the vow that we take. We, we as a congregation take the vow that we will do everything in our power to ensure this person comes to know Jesus or at least has the opportunity to come to know Jesus. And then when the second step in our, in our tradition is something called confirmation. It's when a person reaches an age of discernment or whatever and, and then or, or if you transfer in from another denomination other than Lutheranism or Catholicism then, or Orthodoxy, then you, you must be confirmed by a bishop. And so the, the bishop comes and he lays hands on you, and what he says is, receive the Holy Spirit. So that's the way that we see that progression or procession, whichever way you want to say it, is, is that we see baptism conferring one thing, and then confirmation would be designed to confer another thing, which is the, the filling of the Holy Spirit for the one who has now made a public profession of faith. So... That's the way we see this, and this goes in the opposite direction. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter says, we need to baptize these people. So that he's, he's stressing the importance of baptism, and that's because that's the first thing Jesus told them to do, right? So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so they've already received the Holy Spirit, so now we've got to baptize these people. And I think that it had to happen in that direction specifically in this instance, because they needed to see that God was actually doing something, that God had claimed these people as his own, and they had, he had made them his people. And so Peter says, we got to baptize them. And so they did. And then they asked him to remain with them for some days. They wanted to hear a fuller exposition of what had happened to them and what had happened to Jesus, and what did it mean that Jesus had been raised from the dead? What did all the stuff that had happened to them with this speaking in tongues and extolling God, what had happened to them? And, and that, you know, it, it would be such a bizarre experience that it would require a lot of explanation. And Peter's now put in a position where he's got to figure out some way to explain it because it's not something he expected. It caught him all by surprise, and we know that because it says they were amazed at the fact that these people, these Gentiles, had been given the same Holy Spirit as though they were God's chosen people. It's a powerful thing that happens there, and nobody's prepared for it. In the gospel lesson today, what we've got in John 15, 9 to 17, is we've got, we're, we're at the Last Supper, and Jesus has given them the final instructions before he goes, similar to what Moses does in the book of Deuteronomy, that I'm not going to be with you much longer, and so I need to tell you the things that are truly important and I need to pray and hope that you persevere in the things that I tell you. And, and he begins with a very simple thing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's a commandment. <laughs> he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The important thing is to do. You know, we, we, I can remember having an argument around the... Uh, 
the dining room table with a group of folks one time in a small group that we had. I wasn't particularly involved in the argument. It was two other people who were talking about what does it mean to abide? Is it a passive thing or is it an active thing? Here Jesus makes it really clear, right? If you keep my commandments, you will abide. And so abiding is an active thing. There's just no question about it. And we kind of send a false gospel message to people, in my mind, when we, when we give them assurance of salvation without then discipling them and teaching them to keep all the commandments that Jesus gave. And the commandments are not burdensome, John's going to tell us in a minute. But, but, but what we've sold people is sort of easy believism, as a friend of mine says, and that is, is that all you've got to do is believe. No, that's the beginning is that you have to believe the truth of the gospel, the proclamation that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who came and did all these things and taught all these things, then ultimately was crucified for our sins, which were laid upon him, and forgiveness is given through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that cross. And then he was resurrected from the dead. He was ascended into heaven after 40 days, and then he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and he'll reign forever as king. And so that, that's belief. Belief has content. It has a specific content, and I just gave you what that specific content is. And, and then you also must believe that he's the only way, that there's no other sacrifice possible. There's no other way to heaven other than through the blood of Jesus sprinkled in order that propitiation for sin might be made and judgment not be brought out against us because we're covered in the blood of the Lamb. So once you've done that, then Jesus says you have to keep his commandments in order to abide in his love. So we, can, we want to abide in his love, not just experience it one time and then move on with the rest of our lives. He said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just like I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then it says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not too many people speak of keeping my commandments and joy all at the same time, but it is. With him it is. And that's exactly the point of Psalm 119, which is an ode to the law that David penned. And, and it's each, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is expressed in, that, in those, uh, ver- those eight verses each for all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so Jesus says, this is my commandment, listen up, right, that you love one another as I've loved you. You know, if, if that was easy and natural, he wouldn't command it, but, it, but it's not. And it, and it calls for great sacrifice. That kind of love that he's talking about calls for great sacrifice on our part. It's not just some sloppy sort of feeling about people. It's greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, which is exactly what Jesus is getting ready to do. And so the call to love is not just called to feel love. It's called to actively love, just like Jesus actively loved us. And so he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. So abiding in his love and being his friends require us to actively do something. You're my friends if you do what I command you, which is to love, which is, again, an active thing, not just a passive thing. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. 
And that is a pretty decent definition of a, of a friend, right? Is somebody who confides, somebody who, who has wisdom and shares that wisdom with you. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. So Jesus is calling them to do exactly what Adam and Eve were told in, in Genesis, right? I mean, to be fruitful and multiply. And so what he says is that I'm calling you, choosing you, and appointing you to go and bear fruit. So be fruitful and multiply, and that your fruit may abide. So in other words, that, that you're not just bearing fruit that can be destroyed very quickly and go rotten very quickly or whatever. No, instead he's calling them to bear fruit that should abide. And then, when you do those things then you can ask the Father, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. <clears throat> so we're called very simply and, and, and straightforward to love one another, to do what the loving thing to one another. And we're called to love one another in, not just in, in thought and uh, word, but in deed. And John, in his epistle, fleshes that out earlier on. We're gonna, we're not gonna be in that part of his epistle, but he, but he says, if anyone has, bro has sees a brother in need and doesn't do anything for him, he doesn't. He's proof that he doesn't love him. Because if you truly love someone, you'll do anything you can to provide for that person, to help that person when they have a need. And so John now comes into this epistle and he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Excellent. I believe that. You believe that. You wouldn't be bothering to listen to this podcast if you didn't believe that. So you have been born of God. Just exactly what Jesus taught uh, or tried to teach at the time to Nicodemus in John 3. In the gospel, he talks about being born again. And so, so he says, not by water, but by water and the blood and all that. And so now he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's a simple, straightforward, declarative sentence. Period, period, period. Right? So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you've been born of God. But, but that's not the end, right? I mean, being born of God is the beginning. And then he says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. So here we go again. So anybody else who's been born of God, we are children of God, then we're supposed to love them. Jesus says you've got to love everybody. He says, love even your enemies. But John here makes it very clear, hey, I'm talking about the fellowship of the brothers right now. That, that if you don't love your brothers and sisters that are in fellowship, then you're not being a child of God yourself he says by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God <clears throat> that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome right if you love your parents and your parents give you commands then you do those things you do them out of obedience but you do them out of love you trust them you you trust that they believe they that, that they know what's best for you. That even in spite of the fact that you want to do this, it's best for you to do what they have said to do because you acknowledge their superior wisdom. You know, that, that's the thing, is, is that you can do it out of just obedience. And that's the, in the parable 
<coughs> sorry, of the um, the prodigal son, what you see there is is that you have one son, the older son, who does things strictly out of obedience. That's it. I'm trying to be a good guy, and good means I do what I'm told, without ever recognizing that there's more to that. There's, that, that his father is somebody who loves him. And that his response to his father is not to love him in return. It's just to do the stuff that he says to do. And you see, he grits his teeth and he goes through this stuff. And then that's all he gets out of it is the, the sort of the benefit of obedience. What he doesn't get is, is the benefit of being obedient from love. And so how do we see the commandments of God? Do we see them in such a way that, that we'll just we'll, we'll believe those things and we'll do those things because he's great? Or do we then also, this is a common theme for me it seems like, or do we do these things because we believe that he's also good? What is our image of God? What do we think of when we think of God? What do we think of his commandments? Do we think they're an onerous burden? Or do we see that there's something to be joyfully done? Because Jesus connects joy and commandments, really, right? And so here, the, he, John is connecting command, keeping the commandments with love. And so there's a, there's a different way of being obedient. There's a way of being obedient out of love and the goodness of God, and believing in the goodness of God, not just the greatness of God, not just that he can punish us, but that also what he commands us to do is what would be best for us. And so that's what John's saying. This is the love of God. We keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it then that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we've come back around to the beginning of his argument that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he said that's overcoming the world. And overcoming the world is overcoming death because that's the world, right? The world is sin and death. And so Jesus is the victory over that. And if we acknowledge that, if we acknowledge that the world has been overcome in us because we have no fear of death, because of the resurrection of Jesus, then, then we can move on out of love because we'll accept that love and that grace and that mercy of the cross and that we can live from that place of joyful obedience to his commandments, which are simple, right? Love him, love one another. And so Paul, but John's speaking to a community, obviously, that's struggling with this issue because they've been taught some things that were not true. And so those things that they were taught has caused confusion. It's caused them to, to wonder what all this means. And it's, they've been taught by those who are Gnostics, who claim to have a superior knowledge that's been given to them that, that others don't have. And so what they're finding is they're finding confusion. They're finding themselves to be wrapped up in confusion because they don't know what the truth is. And so John comes to say, I'm going to make this really simple for you. They're, they're making it difficult because they're claiming that they need all this special knowledge and this special revelation. But he's, he, John's saying, I'm here to tell you, this is really simple. This is love God, love one another. That's it. And if anybody teaches you not to love and not to love in an active way because you wouldn't meet the needs of somebody if, if you thought their physical nature really wasn't important and it was just a thing, then, then you would not know how to love. But we're to love one another in, in deed as well. And so he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. And when he says he came by the blood, what he's pointing to is the cross. And he's pointing to the act of salvation that Jesus accomplishes there on the cross when he makes atonement for the sins of the whole world. And so he didn't just come and get baptized. No, he says, no, that's not the end of the story is the baptism of Jesus. The end of the story is the crucifixion of Christ. And the crucifixion is the ultimate act of love, the ultimate act of love towards the Father because of his trust in the Father that this is not the end of this story. And then also it's an ultimate act of love in laying down his life for his friends. And so so he says Jesus didn't just get baptized to identify with sinners. No, he was crucified to identify with the sins of those sinners. And then he says the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So if you know these things, he says, it's because the Spirit lives in you and you've been born of God and the truth now lives in you for that same reason. And now go and do. That's the commandment and that's the way it all hangs together. It's when we go and do as Jesus has done and doing so we make him known to the world. And we'll see great things. And we'll see our prayers answered, he says. If we're about the business of God, which is making his known love known to the world, and we do that in the proclamation of the gospel, we also extend that work by our love for others as well. Not just proclamation, but in doing what Peter did, which is going. Because God sent him. He trusted him to go to that Gentile home and preach the gospel to those people. And now the tent is expanded. The number of people, the possibilities for growth and multiplication are vastly different now that we know that God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And so Peter had to get a bigger vision. And he got it and saw the fruit of it for one simple reason. He was obedient to God's command. Do you want to see God show up and do great things? Then what it says is be obedient to His command. Love one another.